Hi everybody, welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and this time I'll be talking about who wants to be a chef anymore. From Eater, New York. One of New York City's top cooking schools, the International Culinary Center, is permanently shutting its doors in Soho and merging with the Institute of Culinary Education, the New York Times reports. The two schools have been planning collaborations for some time, according to the report, but ICC's move to completely fold into ICE was brought on by the pandemic. Many New York City businesses have struggled to survive amid the city's months-long shutdown due to COVID-19. ICC, formerly the French Culinary Institute, of which I am a graduate, will open up classrooms again when the city moves into phase four of reopening and it plans to remain operational until the end of the year so that current students can finish classes. Afterward, the location will shut down and all programs moving forward will be held at ICE's campus downtown in Battery Park City. According to the Times, there are no formal agreements in place yet to bring ICC's headlining instructors, including Jacques Pepin and renowned pastry chef Jacques Therese, over to ICE's classrooms. The CEO of ICE tells the Times that he hopes to have their involvement with future programming at the school. There are no set plans to integrate ICC's specific courses into ICE programming yet either. Costs for programs at either schools can run up to $45,000 depending on the length and type of program. ICC launched in 1984 in New York City under its former name, the French Culinary Institute. Over the years, alumni have included now prominent names in New York City's dining scene, including Blue Hills, Dan Barber, David Chang, Angie Marr, and Christina Tosi. Both ICC and ICE's New York campuses have been largely shut down since the pandemic hit the city, with the exception of some virtual training courses. Once ICE's location reopens, the school has no plans to expand its physical space for the merger, the Times reports. I'm reminded of this when I hear people talk about the restaurant culture in New York City. It isn't as simple. Nothing ever is. As gearing back up again, when reopening takes place and limited indoor seating resumes, there are many, many other concerns to address, including the astronomical cost of doing business. Rent, taxes, and insurance alone in a blue sky scenario make it like living on the razor's edge 24-7. And that's for decent places to survive when there isn't a global health crisis. Or something happens like one of your staff falls and hurts themselves. Or your HVAC system dies. Or just about anything goes wrong. The two schools needed to merge to survive. And now even that's iffy. They set the standard for quality and staffing. They changed the course of the restaurant experience and diners' expectations in this city. It costs a lot of money to go to culinary school. The ROI is basically fruitless. You pay for the ingredients you use as part of your tuition. You are paid slave wages when you do get a thankless, hot, sweaty job. 
The apocryphal story is that a culinary school graduate looks for a job, believing the story they have been told about opportunity. The proprietor at the place they go looking for a job points out a kid who has no formal education but desire, who will work like crazy, never complain, has a keen aptitude, and then the grad is asked why they should pay them more when the kid will work harder without having to be told more than once how to do anything for less money. Typically, people last about five years before they cycle out of the business after graduation because they cannot make a living wage, realize they will never be a marquee chef on the Food Network, and their personal lives are in shambles. Missed holidays, missed family occasions, relationships at opposite hours, work on weekends, etc. You go in early and stay late. It beats you up and takes a heavy toll on your body. The casualty rate is high as far as substance abuse and committed relationships are concerned. It isn't worth it to be a chef in New York. The talent pool is draining and fast. That's the tippy tip of the iceberg. There won't be a cook shortage. There will be a chef shortage. Cooks can become chefs, but more often they are task-oriented. They can grow into it, but it usually takes longer, and their exposure to variety is limited by what they do and who they cook for. The good ones are called hackers. They have no formal education and learned on the job. They don't have the built-in prestige that culinary grads pay for. So it is obvious that the glam appeal of chefdom is waning. The bloom is off the pedal, as they say. I was ahem, lucky. I enrolled ahead of time and got a discount. The dean of academic programs at the French Culinary Institute was a master chef and friend who I previously worked with at the Garden City Hotel, still the very best place I ever worked at in my life. And he served as my reference mentor. He also introduced me to Andre Soltner and got me to work for him doing prep for James Beard, the guy who owned and operated Lutesse, described as the high temple of haute cuisine, and he was described as the high priest, the go-to place for madmen. My dad generously paid the down payment, and I paid off the balance a few years after I graduated out of the business since my hands were destroyed and utterly useless as a result of spinal injuries and back pain due to several gay bashings, including one at the school with, of course, zero witnesses. The other bashing was right outside the door of a long-closed historic leather bar in Chelsea called The Spike. I worked at Morell & Company, America's premier wine merchant, as e-commerce manager with a bunch of former chefs who were all wine salespeople, were struggling, and took off-the-books gigs on weekends at iconic New York places like Chanterelle. You had to be damned good to get a weekend gig there. Working 12-hour shifts for $25 an hour. Talented chefs who could not make ends meet otherwise. Now... The antisocial, self-abusive behavior people find themselves in and get up to are the worst kinds of self-destructive behavior people can get up to. And you're out late at night with not many bumpers to keep you from going to the bad places. When I worked at the Village Atelier, the quirky yet savvy business owner who had leases on three properties on the block and had investment stakes in several other places around town would chat with me about the realities of running a restaurant. This was a very well-regarded salon, as he referred to it, and at one point it had three stars from the New York Times. 
and it had a star-studded media-heavy clientele from publishing to Broadway to movie star legends to network TV news anchors to late-night TV hosts because at the time, I wanted to open my own place. And he told me that you always renegotiate a 10-year, not a five-year lease, but a 10-year lease for 20 years if you are still in business after the second year. Otherwise, you will wind up working for the landlord. A friend who owned a legendary gay bar that closed in 2012 told me that he could not bring himself to renew the lease because if he did, he would essentially become an employee of the landlord who raised the rent from 12000 a month to $27,000 a month. Next door at the veteran bar space from our building, which was at various times a lobster house, a gay bar, a celebrity-studded nightmare of a club, another gay bar, a private club, which was great because there was virtually no loitering, noise, crowds, or anything that would disrupt your night, except for when Beyonce had her post-MTV awards party there, and the entire block exploded after midnight and drove the entire block crazy until well after 5 a.m. And then it was a world music bar, and now a really nice, cool, new gay bar. They were going to open the week of the lockdown. Rent is 30 k a month, and they are empty. These two examples are slight diversions, but telling diversions. On the Eater's Digest podcast this week, Amanda Klunt and Daniel Jeenan spoke with Jasmine Moy, a hospitality lawyer, about rents. A common question I've been getting is, why would a landlord rather have a vacant space than have a tenant that's paying a discounted rate? So I know that these people have mortgages if they are mom-and-pop landlords. At first, I thought it might be tax breaks, but then I see that's not necessarily the case, especially in many cities. So what is the motivation there? Jasmine Moy said, it is a direct relation that the rent has to the value of the property. And when I talk about the value of the property, I'm not talking about the assessed value of the property. I'm talking about the value of the property to the bank and the security that the bank sees in that building or in the space because the kind of money a bank will lend you is directly related to how much income you can see from the property. And by income on the property, all you're talking about is rent. So the minute you lower the rent, you lower the ability to borrow money or to get any kind of liquidity from a bank. And so people are very reluctant to do that. So they would rather, versus lowering the value of the building and reducing the rent, they would rather leave it empty. And I'm not a tax attorney, but I do know that there are various write-offs and things you can take if you're taking a loss on any given year. So there's no financial incentive to lower the rent on any space. They don't take a hit. The hit is to them in terms of what they have to access as far as the money goes, capital goes. I talked to a developer who said he could leave a space open for six years before he'd actually start to lose money. So yeah, until we tax people, until we disincentivize people or find a way to disincentivize them from leaving a premises open. I talked to a developer who said he could leave a space open for six years before he'd actually start to lose money. And they said, oh, wow. Oh, my God. Which is a really long time, which is why you walk in the West Village and everything's empty. It's because they can. Unless there's actually a vacancy tax, like in San Francisco, people are just going to keep doing this. They will let their tenants walk rather than lower the rent for them. From Eater, New York, landlords lose money when restaurant properties sit vacant, so why not give rent relief? By Patrick Sisson. Another key factor is the relationship restaurant owners have with their landlord. 
Paying rent on time is just 50% of the relationship, says Salar Sheikh, a consultant with LA-based Savory Hospitality. Is the restaurant tenant an amenity that drives foot traffic? A famous name that brings them business? A corporate chain with deep pockets and consistency? Or a business with a grandfathered liquor license, a huge asset that may be at risk if a property were to remain vacant in a downturn? That means more leniency. Some landlords see the fallout from COVID-19 as a time to cull poor-performing restaurants and strike a better deal. Consider a small bistro that signed a deal two years ago in an up-and-coming neighborhood. The landlord, looking for a tenant to drive foot traffic in what might be a gentrifying neighborhood, offered a sweetheart deal for a five-year lease. If that bistro is looking to negotiate some rent breaks or deferment, the landlord may look at how much more he could charge a new tenant and decide that refusing to provide a break, which may mean months of an empty storefront, will be a lot more than made up by a new tenant paying higher rent. It's kind of like chess, and your landlord is thinking, are you a king or a queen? Are you a pawn? Or can you afford to lose or win the game, says Sheikh. This is not to mention the disruption of the traditional supply chain the maintenance, the lag time to come back up to speed, and the accumulated debt, loss of clientele, ancillary expenses, personal strife, stress, and a host of other unseen or unconsidered variables that have or haven't arisen yet, etc. From the New York Times, some national chains, both retail and restaurants, are closing outlets in New York City, which are struggling more than their branches elsewhere. For years, Bryant Park Grill and Cafe in Midtown Manhattan has been one of the country's top-grossing restaurants. The star property in Arc Restaurant's portfolio of 20 restaurants across the United States. I researched booking the venue for an LGBT event, and the expense was staggering beyond belief. They were not cheap. But what propelled it to the top has vanished. The tourists are gone, the office towers surrounding it are largely empty, and the restaurant's 1,000-seat dining room is closed. Instead, dinner is cooked and served on its patio, and the scaled-down restaurant brings in around $12,000 a day, an 85% plunge in revenue, its chief executive said. Five months into the pandemic, the drastic turn of events at businesses like Bryant Park Grill and Cafe that are part of national chains shows how the economic damage in New York has in many cases been far worse than elsewhere in the country. It's everything from Shake Shack to TGI Fridays to high-profile top-tier restaurants. They close and the talent has to go in order to survive, so they perceive. How can you hang on? It's not a high-paying gig. You can't sit on your hands and wait. You get out or move on or both. If you move away, the pay is even lower, although the cost of living is a little less than New York City. You also don't have the proximity to mass transit for you to commute and the clientele to come and get a little high and not worry about DUIs, although Uber has mitigated that substantially. The expense can be daunting as well, and I want to address the self-destructive aspect. I have so many examples, I can never fit them in, but I have been around and engaged in enough self-destructive behavior late at night with a small cadre of weary, cliquish people who spend their evenings on their feet robotically performing the same demanding tasks over and over, which, not that surprisingly, gets to a lot of people who perform them. Some thrive on it. I know a few people who propelled themselves to fantastic heights and others, mostly others, who fell into the pit. Now, gay people work in restaurants too, 
They work in bars. They do everything. They knew wine. They pour drinks. They run the front of the house. They cook. They do it all shoulder to shoulder with their straight brothers and sisters. They are equally vulnerable, maybe even more so because of the late night nature of a lot of gay life. And they also have less bumpers to steer them away from self-destructive behavior. As I mentioned in my podcast, The Crystal Crisis. And there are quite a lot of primitive mentalities who are sexist and homophobic. I worked in one of the top restaurants doing pastry on the line, and the chef owner would frequently ask if anybody who was a guest that made a fuss, asked pointless questions, or complained was a faggot right in front of me. People like Mario Batali and Ken Friedman and others have faced the music due to their sexist, sexual predatory, sexual assault behavior, and the toxic atmospheres in many kitchens is off-putting, to say the very least. Complaining about gay people in restaurants is like complaining about doctors in hospitals. I actually worked as a pastry chef in five well-known restaurants, and the experience overall was good with managers. I just had to endure mindlessly hostile dimwits who worked on the line with me. Again, we cycle out of the business as soon as we pay off our debts. It is a hard life with hard-bitten people who don't share your love of culture, diversity, cuisine, or much else. Even though most restaurants do have diverse staff, it can be quite oppressive. And this is all in service of the idea that what you sell will make people with the means spend money on expensive items and expensive alcoholic beverages. That's where the money is. Getting anybody to pop more than two times the price of a bottle that you pay for is where your profit lies. Drinks that go for more than $15 each is where your profit lies. Beer is profitable. Salad and Diet Coke, mmm. And there was a long-standing axiom that pizzerias are the most economical business models for restaurants because so many ingredients are reused and it follows the KISS rule. Keep it simple, stupid. But that still is not enough. And people who pay exorbitant amounts of money to learn how to cook haute cuisine don't want to make pizza. Plus, an awful lot of pastry chefs make great pizza for staff snacks when they have a few free minutes. It's all tucked in their skill set, but it's definitely not the focus. So who wants to be a chef anymore? It's a tough road to hoe. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out. Thank you.